The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 11:27 through Mark chapter 12 verses 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walk as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. If you haven't spent much time in church, okay, or... Maybe you spent a lot of time in church, but you haven't learned much about Jesus. Today is a good day to join us. You're going to get a crash course um, in what got Jesus killed, okay? Many people say, oh, it was the Jews, you know, the Jews killed Jesus, or it was this group of people that killed Jesus. Um, It's really easy to dismiss it as somebody else or somebody else's problem that killed Jesus. But what we're going to see today is, Um, what killed Jesus was really, um, us. It was humans. It wasn't just a a narrow group of people, but it was a people, a group of people who were challenged by him, were rubbed the wrong way by him. Jesus, who many people around the world would say he's a peacemaker. Indeed, the, the prince of peace. He taught that people should love their neighbors, forgive their enemies. He said that love for God and love for others were the two most important commandments. Now, why would, just think about this. If a guy comes on CNN right now and his main message is love your neighbors and love God, why would that get a guy killed? Was that just an intolerant time, intolerant generation? Or they just like to kill anybody that they disagreed with? Or or, or what's it about Jesus' message that gets him killed? 
Because it's, I would present that if he came today, if he walked among us today, the end result of his life would be the exact same. He'd be killed. See, the short answer for what got Jesus killed, we saw it all the way back in Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3. It was, he would teach, he would say things, and people would marvel at his authority. See, it's this word authority that bugged people so much, that crossed people so much. He had real authority. See, in our culture, one of our chief virtues is that of tolerance, right? We want to let everyone do their own thing. We want our whole society to be a no-judgment zone. But then, the funny thing is, we, we want ever just let them do what they want to do, let everybody live how they want to live, but then we complain, right, about the cr- crime in our streets. Why are there so many shootings? For, I can't believe can't, I can't even tell you how many people I've seen posting that on Facebook in our city. Why are there so many shootings? I'm going to move. I love it. I'm going to move. I'm like, move where? Turn, the, turn on the news, right? Unless you're building a bunker somewhere, crime's going to follow. Crime is everywhere, right? We wonder why violence is up and mass shootings are up and you know, we, we complain on Facebook about bullying and racism. Now, listen, all of those things are horrific. All of those things are worthy of resisting and fighting and, 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 and working for the removal of. They're all awful and they need to be changed. But think about it. If your chief value is tolerance, Right? tolerating everyone, letting people do whatever they think is right, how could you ever tell someone, stop it? How could you ever tell someone, no? How could you ever have any authority to tell a person how to live their life? Like, don't kill people. If your chief virtue is tolerance, you don't have any ground to stand on. And Jesus, see, Jesus, his chief ground was not tolerance. Jesus had real authority. But the problem with us, I think most of the time, we might say, well, I don't have a real problem with authority as long as I'm in authority. Right? I want to live how I want to live. I don't want anybody telling me how to live. But yeah, I want to tell everybody else how to live right? They should live like me. Now, this really is nothing new, okay? We have a problem with authority. We don't want people to tell us how to live our lives. We kind of do want to tell other people how to live their life because we don't like their way of life when it bothers us. This is nothing new, We don't like authority unless we are in authority. We want to be the boss. We want to be in control. And we do not like being under the authority of anyone else. And now listen, why am I talking about this? This is exactly what got Jesus killed. See, Jesus was the authority. Jesus was the son of God. 
he's literally the boss of everything. He's an authority of everything. And he taught like he actually owned it all. Like creation listened to his voice. Like everyone should respond and should obey him. So Jesus taught with this kind of authority and it it absolutely crossed people's wills, bothered them, caused them one of the, my favorite uh, terminologies in scripture caused them to gnash their teeth at him. They would grind their teeth at Jesus. Jesus could literally say, I am truth. I am the standard of goodness. I am God. If you want to know the father, if you want to know God, look at me. If you want to know the meaning of life, look to me. And surprisingly, you know who got the most angry? The the people that got the most angry weren't all the rule breakers, but we've been seeing it's the rule followers. It was those who had worked their way up into positions of authority in society. See, one of the most intoxicating things about being in authority is you begin to make the rules for everybody else. Now, listen, if you own your own business, this is one of the reasons you own your own business. Because you got tired of working for somebody else and you realize if I worked for my own, myself, I could make my own rules, Right? I could be the boss. Very intriguing, right? Very intoxicating. But one of the bad things is, is I want to use a very uh, modern example in the political realm, but I'm not, I'm going to steer clear from that this morning. One of the things about being the most uh, authoritative person in the room is after a few years of that, or maybe decades of that, you begin to forget that you are under authority. See, you get really intoxicated by being in authority and making the rules and you forget what it's like to be under authority. See, you get to tell everybody else how to live their life and obey the rules and you begin to forget that you are not the ultimate authority. That's what happened with the Jewish religious leaders. We're going to take a look at this morning. The Jewish religious leaders were so intoxicated by their positions of authority that they forgot the only authority they had was delegated authority from God for a season. So when Jesus shows up and he possesses real authority, they hate him. Last week, Jesus went into the temple and he flipped over tables. He cursed the temple the very center of religion in the world, the locust day, the place of God. Jesus cursed it and said, no longer will people come to this place to meet God. They'll now come to me. I'm the new temple. I'm the new authority. And this stirred up the Jewish Jewish religious leaders. Let's look. Let's go to go. Chapter 11, verse 27. We go verse by verse through the books of the Bible. Follow along with us. It might be on the screen. We use the ESV translation here. I'm going to go ahead and read. And they came again to Jerusalem. So Jesus and his disciples are coming again to Jerusalem. They're just two miles outside of the city. Now they're walking back in. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, is all the, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They said to him, by what authority 
Are you doing these things? Why are you flipping tables and, and calling us to repentance? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now that's the problem. Jesus, who gave you this authority to act this way, to teach this way? Now that's a really big question. If I came up to you today and I said, give me 30% of all the money that you've made so far this year, you would giggle and turn around and walk out. Why? I have no authority, right? Who am I to tell you to do this, right? But when the United States government says, give me 30% of everything you made this year, you comply, right? Why? They have authority. If you don't, they can lock you up, right? We, nobody writes those, nobody, you know, gives them, oh, I'm just oh, so excited about the way our government's handling things. I'm so thankful. I'm just going to send this check. You know what? You want a little extra? I'm going to send a little extra this month. Nobody's excited about that, but we respond because they have real authority, right? We give because, or they take because they have real authority. See, that's what's going on here. All right. The Jewish leaders are the authority and they've forgotten that they're actually under anyone else's authority. So they're calling Jesus out. Why do you think you can boss us around, Jesus? Who do you think you are to tell us how to live our life and tell us where we can worship and how we can worship? Who are you to come in here and flip over the tables where we're making our living? Jesus replies with a question of his own. Jesus says to them in verse 29, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And he's talking about John the baptizer here. Was the baptism of John, who already had his head cut off, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So he's asking this. He's saying, where did John get his authority? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, this is hilarious. Jesus, these, these religious leaders come up to Jesus and they go, Jesus, where do you get your authority? He goes, let me, I'll ask you that. Let me answer you, ask you a question. Where did John the Baptist get his authority? And they're like, right? They huddle up. If we say this, and then you, you see this maneuvering. We see this politicking. They don't want to just answer what's on their heart. They want to say what they think's right. They, oh, he's a pretty smart guy. We see what's going on here. There's some nuance underneath all this and look at how they're working it out. They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? That would be a problem. If John the Baptist was actually authorized by God and his message was from God and we rejected him, that means we've rejected God. Okay, we better not answer that way. But if we say from man, all the people know John is a prophet. And so we don't want to upset the people because what was going on in this time, this day and age was Rome ruled Jerusalem, but they allowed Jerusalem to kind of govern themselves as long as they didn't cause any riots and they kept the peace. Rome didn't really care about their religion, didn't really care what they did on the day in and day out, as long as they paid taxes to Caesar and they kept things quiet in the streets. So the religious leaders, they're like, if we say, John the Baptist was from man. It's going to cause a riot. Rome will come in and then we'll lose all of our power. We'll lose all of our authority. They'll take away our governing rights. 
right? So they're politicking, they're maneuvering, they're not being honest. Our commentary said, those who cannot be honest with themselves can never be honest with Jesus. The pillar commentary. If you can't be honest with yourself, you're never going to be honest with Jesus. And so this, this part's kind of set up, all right? This is the situation. They say, Jesus, where do you get your authority from? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. They don't answer. So Jesus says, fine, I'm not telling you. I love it. I love Jesus. Nah, I'm not telling you. But then Jesus loved to communicate kind of cryptically, right? Uh, Through parables and parables are a story with an intended meaning. Okay. And so Jesus, where do you get your authority from? I'm not telling you because you're not willing to be honest with yourself. You killed John the Baptist. You allowed John the Baptist to be killed. You rejected him. So you're not willing to see who you are and what you've done. I'm not going to tell you that, but let me tell you a story. And Jesus tells this story. Let's jump into it. This story is about, let me just give you a preface real quick. This story is about an owner and a tenant. And the problems that arise when a tenant thinks he's an owner. Okay. This is a story about an owner and a tenant. And when it, what happens, the problems that come up when a tenant tries to behave like an owner. And I'm going to tell you, I think this is one of our greatest problems in life. We know deep down that we're tenants, but we want to live like we're owners. What do I mean by that? We want to be un, we want to be in authority, but not under authority. We want to set the rules for other people to follow them, but we don't want anyone else, including Jesus, telling us what to do with our life, how to live our life, how to spend our money. And what this story is going to show us is if you try to live your life in authority, but not under authority, it's going to be devastating to you. It's going to be devastating. Let's take a look. Verse, verse, chapter 12, verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, this is a fairly common practice in Jesus' day, okay? It's pretty common in our own day as well. I have friends who've had family farms passed down into their family from generation to generation, and even though no one in the family still farms, the family owns the land, they own the houses on the land, right, the barns, and they rent or lease the land out to tenants to farm the land, and then what happens? They pay the family back some percentage, right? Rent, lease agreements, percentage of the crop, whatever. They pay the owners back that amount. What's interesting in this story, if you look at it, the owner did all the work, the majority of the work. He did all the preparatory work. Do we see that? He owned the land. 
He planted the vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower and then he leased it out to this other person and he went away to another country. It's a pretty nice gig here. The man did all the preparatory work and he set someone up, this leaser. He set them up pretty nice. You've got everything you need. You've got the land. You've got the fence. You've got the tower. You've got the wine press. The the grapes have already been planted. You are set up for a career. You are set up for a prosperous career. Here you go. And he goes to another country expecting to receive some of the fruits of the labor. So when the time comes for the grapes to be harvested, he sends one of his servants to get from the tenant some of the fruit. What was this owner doing? This owner was asking what he, for what he already owed, what he already owned. He was asking from the tenant what the tenant owed him. The owner had the authority to ask for a portion of the crop for his rent payment. And yet, what happens? Let's look. It's hot in here. It's, it's hot. It's hotter up here than it is there. So just know if you're suffering, I'm really suffering. And I'm really debating if you're going to see my white tee under the shirt. That's what I'm debating right now. Okay. <clears throat> Dang. They turn the boiler on. The city turns the boiler on in this building too early. Bottom line, that's what happens. And we can't control it. It gets hot like this. And then it just makes y'all think about hell. So that's what I'm doing. All right. It's a real place. Feels worse than this. That's what's going on. All right. So let's look at verse three here. And they took him and beat him and sent him away from the fruit of the, sent him away with no fruit of the vineyard. I want you to hear about, I want you to, we've got to get into this story. Okay. If we don't get into it, we're never going to understand what's going on here. An owner has done all the work necessary to produce a great fruit and a livelihood for the tenant and also some profits for himself and his first family. And he leaves and he sets this man in charge. And then at, when the time came, it's probably three years later, right? When the time came for the harvest, he said, you know what? It's harvest season. I want some wine. Go back to that house. Go back to our farm and get some of that. We haven't been paid in three years. Go back and get some of that. They owe us that. Go get it. Bring it back. This will be great. He sends his servant and the tenants, the renters, see the servant coming and go, no, we don't want to give you anything. And they send him away empty-handed. Right? The owner, imagine the servant gets back to the owner. <laughs> the owner, really? They, they said, what? He did what? With my land and my crop? Now let's see what he does. Verse 3, and they took him. They beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent to him another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Hmm. And he sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. What's going on? 
Well, we've already, we've been talking about this all kind of all morning here. They wanted to be in authority and not under authority. They wanted to act like owners and not tenants. They wanted all the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. And they wanted to cut out the owner. They wanted to keep for themselves what rightly belonged to the owner. And to make a short story shorter, the tenants decided that they were going to act like they were owners. Who do you think you are coming to ask for harvest? Beat them up, send them away running, even killing them. Think about that. The land belonged to the owner, the wine press, the fence, everything. The only thing this tenant did was cultivate what had already been given to him, right? They didn't plant, the owner did it. They didn't do the hard work of building the fence and preparing the land and building the houses and building a watchtower. They did none of that. All they did was cultivate what was already given to them. And then they had the audacity to refuse the owner any of the proceeds. Now, it's a simple story, but what Jesus wants us to see is that we struggle with the same reality. Listen to this. The Apostles' Creed starts out like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 89, 11 says this. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The Bible teaches and Jesus affirms here that God made the heavens and the earth and consequently God owns them. They and all the people who live on the earth are his. David says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, the world and those who dwell therein. What's that mean? Jesus is telling us in this story He wants us all to know God is the owner. God owns it all. God owns the heavens and the earth and every person who lives on the planet. God owns them by right of being their maker. God has given us everything. Now listen, this, we're Americans, you know, I think most of us probably in here we push back on that. We think we're self-made. We look around at our position in life and we puff ourselves up and we congratulate ourselves and we say, my hard work. You know how I got here? Talent, baby. That's how I got here. I outwork people. I'm smarter than people. Everybody knows I'm better looking than people. We congratulate ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here, you are not the maker. Everything you have is a gift from God. You were born with certain gifts and talents. Did you make those? Some of you we're nerds from day one, man. They give you numbers. You're like, Ooh, I want a calculator for Christmas, right? Like you didn't do that. 
You just wanted that. It was just in you. You're just gifted. You just give you numbers and you could crunch them all day long. You were brilliant in mathematics. Why? Because you did it? No. You might have cultivated it, but it was a gift. You were born with it. Some of you were artistic from day one. Did you make that? Were you in your mother's womb saying, mm, I'm going to be an artist? No, you came out with those gifts. Did you develop them? Did you cultivate them? Absolutely. Just like the owner of the vineyard gave all the gifts, but the worker of the vineyard cultivated the, cultivated the seeds, cultivated the ground. See, these are natural gifts from God that has been given to you. We didn't earn them. We didn't create them at best. We cultivated them. Everything we have is a gift from God. He's the owner. We're the tenants. But here's the problem. We're not happy being tenants. We want to be owners. We want to say, no, 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 I did this. I got myself here. We want to block out the owner from returning to his crop and say, no, 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 no. These gifts, these talents, this position in my life, it's a result of my labor and work. Get away, owner. I'm the owner. I'm going to act like I'm the owner. That's how we want to live our life. So what do we do? Look at this is, look at verse six. This is, this kind of blows my mind. The owner had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they, they, they're got, they've got to respect my son. He's my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. Finally, we'll be owners. We'll kill the heir. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. The owner sends his beloved son, hoping the tenants will respect him, but they don't. Instead, they say, here's our chance. We can finally be owners. We can get rid of this God. We can get rid of this owner and we'll be God. Why are these people so hostile? See, I don't think you know how deep down the desire is that you want to be an owner. I don't want to think I'm a tenant. I don't want to think I owe anyone anything. I want to be in authority. Isn't this the fundamental problem or one of the fundamental problems of the human heart? If you have kids, you've seen this. Everything they have is a result of you and your hard work. And yet the first time you try to take something away from them, it could be like one month old or two months old or three months old. You take, they're beating themselves in the face with a rattle. 
It happens. We're not the smartest, all right? You take the rattle, they melt down. You're like, you're beating yourself in the face with it. I took it away because it was hurting you. They melt down. I wanted the rattle. Why? They don't want to be under authority. They want to be in authority. You're going to deal with that today, parents. Did they bring home a lot of candy last night? Do they want to, you know, nicely ration two pieces today, and two pieces tomorrow, and two pieces for, the, for eternity, right? Is that what they want to do? No. I haven't had enough until I vomit. That's the rule, right? And you're going to try to, re- you're going to say, no, you're under authority. You can have a couple pieces or whatever. They're going to rebel from that. See, we're born wanting to be in authority and not under authority. We want to be the boss. The only reason your child, when you take the rattle away, the only reason your child doesn't beat you down is because they don't have the power to do it. If you have a daughter, I hate to do this to my kids, but if you have a daughter that's around three years old, you've seen it in their face. She's like, I would strangle you right now. If I could. Why? Because ultimately, listen, all of us want to be in control. That's what authority is. We want to be in control. We don't like the thought of someone else being in control. And Jesus comes to us. And he comes to us and says, I'm the son of the owner. The owner sent me to tell you in one sense, how to live your life. You, you want to get to God? Do you want to get to eternity with God? Do you want to have a life lived in relationship with God? Then you need to listen to me. I am the son of the one who's in authority. I have all authority. You need to listen to me. Jesus comes to us and he says, listen, you owe me rent. What? You owe me obedience. You owe me love. Why? Everything you have is a gift from my father. Your relationships. The fact that you were born in this country at this, in this day and age and not sub-Saharan Africa 400 years ago. Where would all of your talents be if you were born 400 years ago in sub-Saharan Africa? Huh? It's tough to get a college education then. Right? Everything we have is a gift from God. And Jesus comes to us and he says, all of your gifts, all of your talents, they're all from my father and you owe me. You owe me allegiance. You owe me love. Think about that. There's many of us, right, who we've lived our whole life looking for a break, looking for an opportunity. Look, we don't know what we want to be with our life. We look for opportunities. This owner set this person up perfectly. A working farm that makes wine. This is amazing. I think I want this job, actually. You know, John Calvin got paid with 300. One of his stipulations in his salary was 300 gallons of wine per year in his, in his salary. I'm like, that sounds good to me. 
change it to whiskey, even better, okay? This guy has a good job. Wine makes the heart glad is what scripture says. He gets to work with great, he gets to do this all day. He's set up for life. It's not good enough. He doesn't thank the owner. He doesn't joyfully thank you for this opportunity. No, he wants to grab at it and take it and be the owner himself. Now listen, this is one of the foundational, re- foundational reasons people have for rejecting Jesus. See, Jesus teaching, love your neighbor, love God, didn't get him killed. Jesus saying this, love your neighbor, love God, or else. That got him killed. There's an or else in this text. He says, what's the owner going to do? He's going to go white. He's going to go destroy this tenant. There's an or else. Love God, love others or else. We hate the or else. Who, how dare you tell me there's an or else? How dare you tell me if I don't obey you, there's going to be consequences. Don't, it just riles you. I know it does. Most of you, not all of you. That's what gets Jesus killed. Where did he get this authority? Who does he think he is? He's the son of the owner. Now, what are we going to do here? There's a problem. Jesus comes to us and says, everything you have, thank God for it. My father gave it all to you as a gift of grace, but you owe him. You're, you're in a position of debt. You're indebted to him. You, you need to live a certain way. Now, I know we're getting antsy. Just, just hold on. What are you going to do with that? Well, people have solved that problem or tried to solve that problem in a lot of different ways. In 1939, a man named Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Ends and Means. Huxley was an intellectual. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize of Literature in seven different years, and he was an outspoken atheist. Huxley believed that the universe was created by chance. And therefore, since everything happened by, ab- by just chance, the universe and everything in it has no inherent meaning. Everything is meaningless. He was an honest atheist, because if you are an atheist, This is the intellectual end of the line for you. If everything was created by random chance, then everything is random and nothing has meaning. But in Huxley's book, Ends and Means, he writes this, and I'm going to quote him quite a bit here. This is what he writes. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find significant reasons for this assumption. You hear what Huxley is saying? He's saying he did not come to his belief in atheism through pure reason. He wasn't convinced by science. No, it, indeed, it was the opposite. Huxley had reasons for wanting atheism to be true. He had reasons for wanting the world to be without meaning. And so he used science to justify his assumptions that life had no meaning. Now, why would a person do that? He's trying to solve the problem in our text today. 
Listen, he goes on to write. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove, here it is, that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. See, hear this. For Huxley, he chose atheism because it says that the world is without meaning. He wanted the world to be without meaning. See, if the world, if the world is without meaning, a person can do whatever they want with their life. Nothing is in authority. No one is in authority over them. There are no rules. There is no morality. He chose atheism because he rejected authority, supreme authority. He did not want to be under the authority of Jesus. Now, he goes on. He's a very honest atheist. I love it. He's unlike these religious leaders who are unwilling to be honest about what's going on in their heart and what they really believe. Huxley says this. Well, let me just say this. Huxley doesn't reject Christianity because he examined it thoroughly and found it wanting. He doesn't reject it because of science, like science had somehow proved to him that life had no meaning or no creator. No, this is his exact words. And I quote, I objected to morality because it interfered with my sexual freedom. Did you hear that? That's what he says. Huxley, in college, I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, and therefore, in order to justify that, the world, has the, the world has no meaning, okay? In order for the world to have no meaning, there has to be no God. Okay, I choose that. His sexual preferences determined how he responded to the existential questions of life. Is there even a God? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord Jesus for the body. See, God is our creator. He made us and we owe it to him to obey him. He made our bodies for his own glory and our bodies are therefore not meant to be used for immorality. Huxley the owner's son comes to the door and Huxley slams the door in his face. He says, who are you to tell me what to do with my body? He chooses to live like he's the owner, not the renter. Jesus tells this story. And if you've been around church for a while, you probably say, what a bunch of punks. You, who do these people think they are? How dare they do that? How dare they act like they're the owners and mistreat the servants this way and kill the son and reject the landowner? But how often do we do the very same things? You are living on his earth. You are breathing his air. You are using his gravity. <laughs> 
You are walking around in a body that belongs to him. It was made to be inhabited by him. You are using his gifts and talents that he loaned you. In a sense, in your mother's womb, you went to the librarian and checked out some gifts and talents, right? They're on loan to you. Why? To use for his glory and for his purpose. Are you doing that? Or is everything in your life yours? Mine. It's for me. It's for my glory. Think about it. Where is it in your life right now where you're pretending to be the owner? Is it your time? My time. This is me time. This is my schedule. I go to church once a month. I'll do one thing a week for Jesus. I don't have time for people to interrupt my schedule. Whose time is it? Is it your money? My money. I've earned it. God says, give 10% back to his kingdom on this earth so we can do ministry here. You push back, how dare him? Who do you think you are? You're a tenant. Sometimes we just need to work through this and think, you're, you're a tenant. You're not the owner. What about your kids? It's a tough one. It always bothers me when somebody reminds me that God loves my children more than I do. And sometimes my plan for my children's life to be involved in all the sports and to, to miss church on Sundays because they go, they're in traveling baseball and, they're all, and I think, well, they have to have it because I want them to be successful and they need to do this. Sometimes I need to be reminded that, no, no, God loves my kids more than I love my kids. And God says every human being is to take a Sabbath to the Lord. A day, not just of rest, but of worship. Where we gather with his people and we're reminded that he's the owner. Listen, why, one of the reasons we do confession every single week is because we've lived all week long like we're the owners. Some of us even come in like, I'm going to do God a favor this morning. God's probably real happy I'm here. No, no, no. We need to come in and be reminded that we're tenants and not the owner. And we've lived like we're the owner and we need to repent and confess that to our father. One of the best examples of this in the scriptures is this guy named Job. As I'm closing. Job was a man who knew he was a tenant. He had all kinds of blessings. He had a huge family. He had a lot of money. 
and it was all taken from him. One day, his whole family wiped out. All of his livestock, all of his money. And then he gets, in, he gets affected with boils on his body. He's laying down. All of his good friends are telling him to curse God and die. His wife even says it, curse God and die. Everything was taken from him. And this is what, do you remember what he says? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What are you white knuckling? What are you holding on to? Like you're the owner. I've got one last thought here. Some of you might have already picked up on it. I, this is a little heavy sermon. I'm just going to tell you that. You're already feeling it. You already get it. Hux, Huxley wanted to remove this weight of feeling like he owes somebody something. And to get rid of the weight, he got rid of God. Oh, if there is no owner, then I can do whatever I want with my life. You, you can try to do that, but it ends badly, right? It ends badly. There is a place that's eternal separation from God, and we get one life, and nothing after, the, after we die, there's no second chances for us. What we do in this life really matters. But listen, this is what I want us to hear, and this is what we really need to see in the story. We owe God something, everything, and yet there's one way that everything we owe God can be paid for by God. Hear that? We have a problem. We owe God, but there's one way that God can actually pay the debt that we owe him. It's not good business. It's not good business. And, and if you see the story, this isn't good business. This, this is, this is the good news of the gospel. So please hear it because this is the most important thing I'm going to say today. Everything I've been saying is literally building up to this moment. Okay. If you, if you had to, if you walked out right now, you would not hear a gospel sermon. And I'm really concerned about that. You would hear a legalistic sermon, right? Here's the gospel. This is the important thing. What does the owner do? He, bad business. He looks like, he looks ignorant. Like, oh, they killed all my servants. I do have this beloved son that I love so much. I'll send him down. That'll go well. What do you do? If you're a businessman, if you're an owner, that's not what you do. First servant comes back, you go, really? Here's a shotgun. Take it with you this time. Right? Or you say, call the cops. Call the law. Evict this moron. I own the land, the deeds in my name. I own everything. Get rid of this moron. That's what a good businessman does. But that's not the point. God, that's not what Jesus is here for. Jesus isn't come just to do business. God doesn't come to do business with us. Hear this.
every human being owes God everything. But God isn't interested in just doing good business here. God wants our love. God wants our hearts. God wants their hearts. He doesn't just want the renter to pay him what he owes him. He wants a relationship with them. He wants them to be thankful for all they've been given and to love him in return for his goodness to them. So what does he do? He does the dumbest thing an owner could do. They've mistreated all my servants and killed them. I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. And we know this because Jesus, when he gets baptized by John the Baptist, God the Father speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is speaking to himself about himself. And what do they do? They take him, they kill him, they throw him out of the vineyard. This, hear this, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every human being owes God everything. You owe him your love. You owe him your praise. You owe him your life. You should be centering your entire life around him because everything you have comes from him, but we don't. We resist him. And God knew that we would reject him. And what does he do? He gives us the gospel. He gives us his own son coming to live the life that we've all failed to live and to die the death that we all deserve. It's right here in the story. We don't love God. But God loves us. Look how far God goes to get us to love him. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. This is menace. This is the whole. Let me see this here real quick here. This chunk of my Bible right here is the Old Testament. Jesus is summing up that much scripture in this one little story. God sent prophets. People didn't listen. God sent priests. People ignored him. God sent kings. People disobeyed him. God sent John the Baptist. They had his head cut off. God sends his son, his beloved son, Jesus. And he gets stripped naked, beaten with an inch of his life, hung on a cross and crucified. See, this is the gospel and it's different than good advice and good business. Some people always say like, if God was just into good business, I, we'd all be dead. <laughs> we've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. Like, you just start over. He's not into good business. He's into redemption. He's into the gospel, reconciliation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly comes to earth to save us by going to the cross and dying in our place. All of our sins. And they are many. Were placed on Jesus. On the cross. 
and he paid the price for them. Jesus rejected by tenants who think they're owners. Why? This is brilliant to me. Because ten- so God could make tenants his own sons and daughters. His son was crucified and killed so that we could be brought in, so that we could be adopted. Think about it. This is the gospel. We don't bend our will to an ungracious deity that just wants our obedience. We bend our will to a loving father who's done everything to save us and to love us and to give us grace. So, Father, you are the owner of it all. Everything we possess comes from you. We confess this morning that we've lived far too much of our life, and we do live far too much of our life like we're the owners. Our life and our success and our stuff belongs to us. And it's kind of a stark reminder this morning. It's like being a it's like being in a pitch black room and all the lights flip on at once. Would you forgive us? Would you give us grace? And we know that you will and that you do because you sent us Jesus. And I pray this morning that we would be reminded of that. And as we come to the table, as we break the bread, we take the cup, we'd be reminded how far Jesus went to show us how much you love us. How far the Father was willing to go to save us and to bring us into his family and to reconcile us. He sent his own son. Not good business. But it's the gospel. Father, for those in this room who maybe are believing in you for the first time. I pray that you just can communicate your love to them. They would see the goodness of God and the graciousness of the Father. I thank you for what you're doing in this room this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.